And your connection, the title says on the run. I was real close to calling it desperate times call for desperate measures. So I kind of started laughing over there when I heard the song and the lyric in this song that talks about when we're desperate. I was a CSU playing religion, grew up in church and thought everything was was great. And there was a service one Thursday night. Many of you heard this and that song came on. And it was during that song that I got my call to ministry. And it was during that song that I realized I had been chasing religion without him. You see, if you're still chasing religion, you're still desperate. If you're chasing Baptist, Methodist, whatever else all these man-made titles are, you're, you're desperate because you don't have it. And we are always going to be desperate until we have him because it, it's about a relationship with Jesus. It's not about all these, you know, man-made things that we make up and, and deals and agreements and organizations and, and all that stuff. All that stuff will get you more lost, really. Uh, to get you more desperate because you'd be living for the wrong reasons, for the wrong stuff, chasing the wrong stuff. Uh, you know, it's no different when we talk about having prayer without practicing prayer. You know, the church is one of the biggest places talk about, oh, we, we pray, we pray, we pray. But do we really pray? Do we really put our, our, our mouth where all those words that have been spoken are, are, are coming out to action? Uh, genuine prayer, genuine knowing with faith that anything I lift up to God is going to be given over to God. And I'm basically going to be calling God out on his word for it. God, you told me to pray about it. I'm praying about it. You told me if I give it to you, you'll take care of it. See, I think David got in a little bit of a slip where he may have forgotten about that for a little while. And because of that, he does some some crazy things. Um, he, he gets desperate. And, and I want to ask this morning, how many of you have ever felt like you're on the run? You know, maybe not physically like David here on the run for your life, literally, while, while a king and his kingdom is chasing you to, to take you out. But maybe you felt like you're, you've been hassled. You've been harassed. You, you're restless. You're, you're in a transition. You're off your game. You're, you're out of your routine. Uh, the doctor's news wasn't very good. Your spouse's news wasn't very good. Your kid's news wasn't, wasn't very good. And you're just, you're in trouble is, I guess, the best way we could call it. And David gets to this part in chapter 21 where he's on the run and he's in trouble. You know, last week we looked at all the attempted murders on him and all the way up through his son, Jonathan, finding out the, the truth for sure. So David knows it's no longer safe for him to go back to his hometown. It's no longer safe for him to be in the place that he was supposed to be ruling and have an authority over. So he's officially on the run for the rest of this book. He's an outlaw. He's a fugitive. And I think a lot of us sometimes can relate to that. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, a lot of us like David, when he gets to these first two places, he gets to know Nob and he, and he lies in high priest. He gets to Gath and he ends up acting like a madman. And I think sometimes a lot of us, when we get on the run, we forget and we get desperate. And when we get desperate and we forget, we forget what we're supposed to be doing. And if you get nothing else this morning, man, please understand this. These life lessons, these, these stories with, with David and the course that he's taken, trust God. Nothing more important than those two words of trusting God. You cannot make it. David's not going to make it on his own without trusting God. His life gets out of sync. Your life gets out of sync. And he needs the Lord. So let's look at this first place he goes to. He goes to know where he deceives this high priest. I do give him credit at the very beginning of verse 1. He's in uncertain circumstances, but he does go to the right place. He's pursuing the house of the Lord. He goes to where the priest is, where he can get 
resources and information that he wants. Because in all honesty, he's hungry and he's got no weapons. You know, he, he's left so fast, he's left everything behind. He, he's all missing out. And because of that, he gets here. But the problem is when he gets here, sometimes you can go to the right place and not do the right thing. Sometimes you can be in the right place and not receive the right gift. See, a lot of us do that every Sunday. We'll roll up into church because it's the right place, but we won't let God do the right thing with us. We'll go to the right place. We'll sit in the right pew or the right chair. We'll even hold the right book. But we won't surrender over to God and let him have his way with us. So therefore, we won't let our heart, our mind, and our emotion and our spirit go through the right process. Because we want to fight it sometimes. David gets to the right place, but he does the wrong thing. And these lies, while, while we've been looking at lying, you think lying's not important? Y'all realize from three chapters now, we've been seeing the word lie come up. Maybe God's just sick of lying. You know what I'm saying? Who in here has been lying so much that the Lord wanted us to look at lying three weeks in a row? I just want to know who you are so that I can point at your single yet. One of the kids is raising their hand. Put your hand down, man. Don't let your mom see. She's going to know what's up. Huh? Look, she ain't here. We well, can get away with it then, right? <laughs> he gets to this priest. Look at verses one through three, man. He's going to gather supplies, not just going to the right place. He's, he's going for a motive. He needs food. And he's going to need a lot of food and he needs weapons because he didn't bring any. Okay. And that's, that's specifically what he's going to ask for. But you get to verse one and David comes by himself. And when he approaches the kingdom by himself, look how worried the priest is. Verse one, the priest says, why are you alone? Like he knows something must be up if somebody of David's prominence and position and power has traveled to him alone. So he's, well, what's up? What, 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 what's going on? Instead of telling him the truth, David lies in verse two. He says, oh, no, nothing's up. I'm on a special mission. The king's got the king's got to have a special mission. The special mission is to kill David. So he's somewhat lying, maybe sugarcoating is what we could call it, right? But he even acts like he's got more men out there with him. Yeah, I'm on a special mission and me and my men are going to need the food. We're going to need the weapons and, and all this kind of stuff. And I just want us to look, because we saw it, we see David do it, we saw Jonathan do it, we saw Mikhail do it, uh, you know, and, and all this stuff. They're all lying to protect themselves and sometimes even thinking they're, they're doing it to protect somebody else. Church, a lie is a lie. I don't care what your motive behind it is, how good it is or anything else. And for all of us that read this sometime and read other sections of scripture and think, you know, the Bible's not really condemning these lies. Well, the Bible's not condoning and approving of these lies either. I hadn't read anything that, 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 that approved of it. A lie is still a lie, even with good motivations. And understand this, the Bible records these lies because get it, people lie. That's it. Somebody asked me a couple weeks ago what a, what a different situation is like. Well, why does the Bible record that? Because it happened. That's it. Sometimes we forget that the Bible is a historical book as well as a spiritual book. That's like it's recording things that actually happened. It, it, it tells us about lies because people are involved and people lie. The Bible doesn't cover it up. The Bible wants to be truthful about exactly what's going on. And you can write this down about David. I think this, this is pretty good. Uh, David isn't an ideal life. David is an actual life. I think sometimes we read a lot of our, our stories in scripture and we get mixed up and, and we forget these are real people going through actual events in their life. There's why we can learn from their mistakes and we can also learn 
from the things that they do well. So as we look at David's life, we need to understand David is a real person and real people make a lot of mistakes. I know none of you do because you are holier than thou and everything else. But other people in the world are making mistakes. They're they're sinning. They're having problems. They're telling lies. And I got news for the other people in the world that do that. God loves them anyway. So until you're willing to admit that maybe you're one of the ones that's telling lies, that's messing up, that's getting in a little trouble. Maybe you're missing out on some of that extra love that God has. You know what I'm saying? Think about the little boy that raises his hand real fast. I'm not going to call him out because his mama is here. He just didn't know what I guess. Yeah. But, but, but think about that. That mama's view of his love or her love for him didn't change because he said, I'm a liar. You know, it's not, oh, that's a liar. He's out. You're walking home from church today, little man. You know what I'm saying? And you're not getting lunch either. Right? That didn't happen. If anything else, a parent looks at like, man, my kid at least knows what he's doing wrong and he's willing to profess it before others. How about the love for God that could grow for us if we were willing to just admit, man, I've messed up. I'm going to profess it before others so that I can get it off and allow healing now to take place from it. There, 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 there's some, some stuff that, that David does. And, I, and I'll say this, which will, well, I'm not going to say it yet because we're going to get to it. All right. David, David lies to expose. And, and maybe I give David a doubt. Maybe he's lying to save the priest from danger. You know, maybe he knows if I tell this priest who I am, what's going on. He's going to be now equally responsible. What? Here's a thought. If you're going to put me in danger, at least give me the responsibility and the choice to choose if I want to be in danger or not. Okay? he took the option from him. He denied him that right to even make his own decision on whether he's going to be involved in this or not. So whatever David's reason is for lying, and I'm thinking it's probably more to protect himself. uh, Proverbs 12 says this. Because lying violates truth. Scripture says that God is a God of truth. Proverbs 12, 22 says the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful. Yes, I understand lying can be a huge temptation when you're going through desperation, but that doesn't in any way make it right. Because here's what lying really does. Church believers lying demonstrates a lack of trust in God. That's the biggest thing behind it. How different could these stories have been if truth was prevailed at the very beginning? And another thing, other than it demonstrating a lack of trust in God, lying has consequences. Lying puts us into further problems, further situations that maybe we wouldn't even have had to be in and go through. And what we'll see in the future is these lies, these consequences are great for this priest in the area, uh, this town on down the road into the future for what's coming. All right. So there's that. Second thing we see. Some reason for rules. Look at verses four through six. David's honesty. He, he's not just there for the for the prayer and spiritual thing. He's there for food. He says, hey, man, I'm hungry. Four through six. I'm hungry. He asked for bread. But but check out this the story now. Ahimelech doesn't have any ordinary bread. He's got reserved bread, special bread, holy bread. Some of your, your words are going to call it. Bread of present. Some of them are going to call them showbread. Um, and, and some of them may have others. But understand this. These were 12 special loaves that were set out for God in rows, symbolically the 12 tribes of Israel. Go back to Leviticus chapter 24. You can really check it out. And they would think and believe, because of what's said in Leviticus 24, only priests were allowed to eat this bread. So understand how special this select group of food is. And this priest stands before David, a man who probably, I wonder what David looked like. You ever thought about that at this point? He's running for his life. He ain't got nothing. You know he's been crying because we just read last chapter how he weeped 
when he when he cried and told Jonathan goodbye. He's dirty. He's nasty. He ain't took no bath, no shower. You know, he's in a he looks rough. He looks rough. So you can imagine when somebody like that runs up to you, if you're supposed to be a priest, and they say, "Man, I'm hungry. I need something to eat." You're looking around and you're like, "Man, I've got nothing other than this special bread. I've got this special bread that's set aside for special stuff." Now understand this: the, the importance is found in the name of this. So if you've got showbread written in, in scripture, the Hebrew means uh, bread of faces, because it's something that's supposed to be eaten before the face of God. J.B. Meyer, a writer, calls it this. He says the showbread or the presence bread is to eat the showbread and God. Uh, I'm sorry. To eat the showbread was to eat God's bread in God's house as a friend and a guest of the Lord, enjoying his hospitality. Now, think about that in this culture. In this culture, this is why Jesus gets in so much trouble in the New Testament. Guys. In this culture, eating together forms a special bond of friendship. It's more than just, you know, running into somebody at the McDonald's, sit down, eat a burger and split your ways and, and never see each other for another couple of weeks because you're too busy in life. This is a permanent and sacred bonding that takes place. It's one of the reasons why Jesus gets ridiculed for sitting down and eating with the sinners. You know, are you going to really bond yourself with them? And yes, he is. You know, so so understand how important this this wording is. Understand this, what, what the priest does. He says, well, I can give you. The old bread, because I'm about to put out the fresh bread, right? So he's taking this this old bread that's no longer warm, that's no longer fresh and ready, and he gives it to him to eat. But even in that, isn't it a lesson for ourselves? If the show bread is supposed to be our, 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 our FaceTime, our presence with God, and it needs to be fresh, that's, that's what he said, I need to put out the fresh bread in his place. Doesn't that tell us that God wants our fellowship with him to be fresh? He's not looking for no stale relationship. That's done grown cold. He's looking for some fresh, warm fellowship, some face to face time that is new every day, not just once a week, not just twice a week. Right. Look at what look at what verse four says. Go back to it. Now the priest gets a little. A little more strict than he says, if the young men have kept themselves from women. Now, today's family service. So you admire what that means as an adult and figure that out. Okay, you got it. All right. Huh? What's he saying here? This bread. Despite what's about to take place, it's not to be treated casually. This is a special, special thing. It's why Leviticus 24, 9, it actually says, that, uh, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. So th- this is not just regular bread that, that you got a loaf from Walmart or, or anything like this now, okay? Now, now the big difference here, we need to make sure we get this, especially since Jesus is going to talk about it later, is this passage in Leviticus, it does not specifically say that it is only for priests. You guys go home and read Leviticus 24. Make sure you get it now, right? It establishes the principle that it's to be regarded as holy and it should not be distributed casually. So so what does the priest do? He asked David for this basic level of ceremonial cleanness before he gave him any of the showbread. He says, make sure you guys haven't been with women. Verse 5, David responds, truly women have been kept from us. Now I don't know who the us is because David's on the run by himself. But maybe that's just a little bit more lying that's going on. But David has been away, obviously, from a woman. So verse six says this. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but this showbread. And in giving this bread, here's what most people would have looked at this situation taking place on. He would have broke the priestly custom. But that's fine. That's fine. And here's why. Because he breaks a priestly custom. He doesn't break God's word. Do we understand the difference here? Yes, I understand when you read that and you read, if you, if you really go back and read Leviticus 
24 like I know about one of you in the room will do uh, this afternoon. Uh, when you do that, I want you to check out. It does not say only for priests. While that can be established and that idea makes sense, we can't use that reasoning for adding to God's word. Okay? And there's what they would have gotten in trouble, and there's what I believe a lot of religion gets in trouble because we add that little word because it makes sense into scripture, okay? Ahimelech understood that the human need was more important than a Levitical observance. Same thing Jesus understood, right? He's technically going against the rules. No, he understands that the need for life is more important in this case. And Jesus agrees with him because in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, Jesus' disciples are getting in trouble because they're hungry. It's the Sabbath, and they pick up some grain on the side of the road. And all these, these Pharisees and, and religious people, once again, are giving him a hard time over it. And he tells them, guys, you're, you're missing, you're missing the point. Don't you remember back? And he refers to David and this priest and those verses. And he says, that guy didn't do anything wrong. The purpose of the law is to have mercy on others. That's verse six or verse seven of chapter 12. That, that's the purpose of it. Another writer explains it this way, which I think does well. So I'm going to read it. The true meaning of the ceremonial law of the showbread was expressed in its being given to David as an act of compassion and mercy, providing for real need. The law was fulfilled rather than superseded. We understand that? We, we gather now what, what's really taking place. Human traditions are never more important than God's word itself. We don't get to add to scripture, even if something seems logical or right. We, we must never elevate an extension or the application of God's word to the same level as God's word itself. It's like, and, and I'm not always against commentaries, guys, but you need to understand when you sit down to argue, argue biblical basis with somebody and you refer to the commentary rather than the word of God, you may have missed something. Okay, that commentary is smart. He's great. Don't get me wrong. Most of them are very intelligent. Most of them have done a lot of work, but they are not God. And that is not scripture. That is a book written by man. Okay, so the best way to prove scripture is through scripture itself. In other words, God's given us this rule is what he's saying. For the good and the protection, for the loving mercy given to others. Romans 13, 10. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You want to have good results? Follow God's rules. That's pretty simple, right? You, you want to seek the good of others? Follow God's rules. You want to love God? Do good to fellow man. That's it. We complicate things so much with scripture and our, our lack of interpretation of it is what we do. Okay? Verses seven through nine. Here's where danger comes in. I don't know if you guys are as visual as me, but when uh, I read verse 7, even when I was listening to, to Mitch read verse 7 just now, I could hear like the music from a movie coming on. Y'all ever get like that? You know, like you, you, the scene is set. Everything's going well. He's finally got some food. And then verse 7. Saul's secret policeman comes in. It's like you can almost hear the tone change. It, it's like if you had a camera, it would zoom in. Oh, on this guy's face and this guy's eyes and you would see that he's a villain. You got to look out for him. You would see his eyes and how evil they are. Something shifty about him. Uh, you know, it, it would be for sure known that this guy is a bad guy. He's an informer of Saul's secret police and, and his effects on this whole situation are going to be devastating. David knows it. David sees it. What's David tell the priest? Hey, don't you have like a spear, a sword, pocket knife, uh, rock, slingshot? Don't you have something? That I could do it. And here, here's what I love, man. Here's what I love. The priest gives him what? The sword he took from Goliath. 
I'm now getting a picture of David being treated somewhat like Saul during his slide. You notice how remember how every time Saul began to slide, there was always something God did to give him an opportunity to come back. Here it is for David. David's sliding. He's lying. It's not as drastic as the slide. And, and I understand it's not going to change that David is a man after God's own heart. But it's a real story. Real things taking place. So he's beginning his slide. He's beginning to get into trouble. And this priest hands him Goliath's sword that they've been keeping. Now, I laugh because I don't think anything's by chance in life. OK, so I don't think it's by chance that he happened to come to this town, talk to this priest who had Goliath's sword sitting in the back room wrapped up and ready for him. Right. God, God has wrapped this thing up for him perfectly and he hands it to him. And I just wonder what went through David's head when he held that sword. Because, see, I'm thinking if you hadn't read the end of it, now I know we read the whole chapter, you know, so we know. But I'm thinking at this point, he's going to give him that sword. He's going to look at that Secret Service policeman. Come on and get you some. The last guy that got some, I held his head for a little while while I walked around town with it. OK, come on and get you some. I'm ready for you. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking God's provided this opportunity, giving him this sword so that he can hold it and remember it. Man, this is the last time I trusted God to do what I needed to do. And because I trusted God, I knocked down a Goliath, a giant, and took care of it. It's not what happens, though, because David is human. And like us, sometimes God will set us up for success and we will let failure just take right on over. Maybe it's because of the fear. I don't know. Right. Huh? Maybe that's what it is. Now, nothing wrong with the sword. We know what the sword does. But what I think what David is realizing is why he's got this sword. What he needed was that faith, that radical faith that he had when he charged Goliath last time. See, a sword is nothing but a sword until you get the radical faith on the inside, ready to do what God's called you to do. Some of y'all think y'all can wave a weapon around and get it done. If you hadn't been trained to use that weapon, waving it around ain't going to do jack squat for you. Okay? I watch people at the turkey shoot, and I pick up blank papers. They got a gun. They got a shell. They can squeeze the trigger. They couldn't hit the broad side of a bar. Okay? I watch it. I watch it. Church, we got to be trained to use the weapons we've been given. See, some of y'all act all spiritual and y'all wear your little cross. Y'all wear your Jesus T-shirt. Y'all might even tow the Bible on your way into church. Have you been trained to use any of it? Let that slap you in the face because it should. And I'm going to tell you right now, training doesn't stop. Because the more intense the situation, the deeper the training has to go. Correct? Think about think about our military, the different levels that our military goes through. If your guy is getting dropped off on an island and picked up five days later and you can't talk about what you did, you've gone through more extensive training than the guy who's just sitting behind a computer all day long. Now, not to say both jobs aren't equally important on different levels of importance. I'm just saying the training level has to be different. For the person that's going into different, deeper, desperater, desperater, that's a good word. Y'all write that down, right? Desperater situations. The desperatist. There we go. Right? Think about that now. And there's where David's at. So the priest gives him the bread of presence, gives him the sword of Goliath. When David arrived, he was hungry and he didn't have any weapons. When he leaves, he's full and he's equipped. He's full and he's equipped. Church, shouldn't we get full and equipped when we come into the house of God? Shouldn't we get an attitude? Go back to verse nine. I like what he says in verse nine, right? The priest replied, I've got 
the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, who you killed at the valley. Notice how he's reminding him of what happened and where it was. I've got it here. I've been wrapped in it. And Ephrod, uh, if you want to take it for yourself, then take it. For there isn't another one here. Notice he's got to go take it. Then, then this line, this is what I love. David said, there's none like it. Give it to me. There's nothing else like it. Give it to me. We need to, we need to realize there's nothing like radical faith. And we need to go get it. The, the, the sword, note here, the, the two things that David is searching for is the two things the word of God has used symbolism for the word of God. Bread and a sword. Okay? We need to realize this is the sword and there is none like it. And because there's none like it, we need to go after it. We need to be hungry for it. We need to be willing to chase it, pursue it, and then train with it and then put it to good use so that we can exhibit the power that it has, right? Isn't that where it's getting ready to go? No, it's not. Verse 10. I, I had high hopes the whole time, man. I don't lose, I don't lose them hopes. Verse 2, look at verse 10. Look at what it says. David fled that day from Saul's presence and went to Gath. David's attempt to bring cover to himself through clever lies. It didn't bring any lasting results. What's it say just one verse later? He's got to flee again. You notice when we keep doing things our way, we got to keep on running. There's David. He tried to do it with lies, tried to cover it up, tried to sugarcoat it, tried to do this, tried to do that, tried to get man. Notice he's even getting equipped by man stuff. Now the symbolism there is good, but but when did a Philistine sword become more important than, than the shepherd's tools that he was trained to use already? Maybe that's why he needed to run. Because he was using the wrong tool. Maybe that's why some of you are running. Because you forgot the tools you were trained to use, and you're trying to use somebody else's weapon that you weren't supposed to be using. David arose and he fled that day. He's got to flee. And where does he flee? I don't know if everybody caught the significance. Of this city, by the way, I know y'all are great listeners and y'all remembered back, but I'll remind those that didn't. Right. He flees to Gath, Gath, one of the five main cities of the Philistines. More than that, whose hometown is Gath? Goliath's hometown. Now you picture homeboy rolling in. He did get a little bit to eat, so he's looking a little better. But what's he toting with him? Goliath's sword up in Goliath's hometown. Now, it's one thing when you were willing to even have your name recognized in somebody's hometown. But when you told the man that you decapitated sword up in just walking up and down the street, I don't know why he thought he wouldn't be noticed because hear this right here. Listen, your actions are going to follow you the rest of your life. Both good and bad. David's rolling through this city, toting Goliath's sword as if nobody's going to notice him. Now, now, on the flip side of this, I am kind of thinking from a military standpoint, that's a pretty good plan. Because if I'm Saul, I'm never going to go look in Gath for the guy. You, you know, think about that, right? If I'm Saul, I'm never thinking, oh, he went back to Goliath's hometown. I'll go look there. No, that's like the last place anybody's going to be looking for him. So maybe that's his reasoning. But he's dumb enough to think, crazy enough to think, desperate enough to think that he could go there and nobody would notice him. But what's the very first thing they say? Hey, that's David. That's the guy they sing songs about. Notice how his popularity, his song 
had made it on over to their territory. That's got to make you feel kind of good, right? I'm thinking if I heard the enemy say, that's the guy that they sang the song about, that Saul killed thousands and he killed tens of thousands. Once again, God's given him the opportunity to realize who he's supposed to be, right? By the way, who's the tens of thousands that uh, David slew? Philistines. What town's he in? A Philistine capital. So David really realizes and knows right now why he's rolling through town, hauling this sword around from the enemy, uh, getting deeper and deeper into trouble, that he is now as deep as he can possibly get. Because what do we do when we're on the run? We're trying to escape our past rather than face our past. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 24 and 25. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. We are who we are, church. We've done what we've done. And the best news, the good news, whatever you want to call it, of Christianity, is that Jesus can use all that, and then some if we surrender it over to him. Notice what his word says. I want you to surrender it all to me, not parts of your life to me. I want you to surrender all of it. That has to be significant because I got a lot of dirty parts of my life. And for Jesus to say he wants me to surrender all of them to him and he can use all of them, that's special. The parts Jesus can't use are the parts you don't fully surrender to. Him. You fully surrender everything. Even that bad stuff could have been training, could, could have been could have been teaching, could have been anything. But scripture says if you surrender at all, what's he do? He redeems. He redeems us. He redeems those times. He redeems those those moments. Because those moments push us to this right here. Here's where we're at. 12 through 15 now. Final section. Desperate measures. Desperate measures. David gets there. He realizes that he's been captured now by these people. He knew that this king understood. This is a guy who killed tens of thousands of my people. This is the guy who killed Goliath. David says, there's no way this king's going to let me go. I'm done. Now, now pause right there for a minute, okay? So hold your spot. Hold your spot. We 12 through 15. Here's why you got to do Bible study and not just read Bible. Okay? Because now you got to flip to Psalm 56. Psalm 56 gives us a lot more information that's no longer in 1 Samuel 21. Psalm 56, David is writing, and apparently Samuel 51, or Samuel 21 doesn't tell us this. He gets captured for sure. And in his capture, man, when you re- go home and re- I tell you what, go home and read Psalm 56 today. If you don't read none now, Psalm 56 and Psalm 34. Okay? Because you're going to get to see David's reaction while he's in these, these situations. And in Psalm 56, it describes David's journey from fear to praising. All while he's a prisoner in Gath. So notice that change that has to take place. Psalm 56, he's writing, he's a prisoner in Gath. He was afraid. But yet somewhere through Psalm 56, that chapter, before he's he's freed, he now goes into praising. So, And here's why I'm pointing this out, and here's why we need to understand this. Psalm 56 shows us this, a slide that has started. He's now running from the enemy. He's now lying to cover things up. He's now going to get real crazy here in just a minute to, to hide stuff. But Psalm 56 tells us that while all that's going on, when he got to Gath, all that stopped. Because what makes David so different than Saul is that while Saul started sliding and continued to slide, David started sliding and then stopped. He realized in Psalm 56 why he's in prison in Gath and he writes and records. It was there that the Lord, I realized, was rescuing me. 
it was there that I realized I had been doing things wrong. David was afraid and he should have been. So what's he do? He pretends to be a madman. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says this. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. You go act it. You got to act it all out, right? Dude's going crazy. He's just drooling all over himself, hitting walls, writing on the walls. Now, Now think now these guys in the culture, this custom, they took good care of their beards now. They gave Joe a good run for his money over there, right? They had conditioner on it. They combed it. They groomed it. They didn't let no dirtiness get up in there, right? So when they saw this guy letting saliva, drool, nastiness on his beard, they they knew it was serious, right? I I like what he says in verse 14. Kind of get a, a a little comical line from the king. He says, don't I have enough crazy men around me already? Why are you guys bringing me more? Now, some of y'all think that every Monday when y'all go to work. You know, I know Miss Melinda thinks it when she gets on the bus. Right? She got enough crazy kids around her. Why are they giving her more, right? Desperate times call for desperate measures. David's come a long way from where he was fighting Goliath and now pretending to be a bad, uh, madman with drool running down his face, right? Church, just because you're a follower of God, not religion, God, you're going to have mountains and you're going to have valleys. You got to be prepared for both of them. You got to be prepared for both. Now, now ask the question, was David walking in the spirit or in the flesh when he pretended to do all this? I, I wondered about that after checking out the Psalms. Now, when I first read it through, I said, man, he's done got him another crazy idea doing his own thing, you know, to get out of there. But but if you can break down those Psalms and understand that Psalm 56 is written why he's a prisoner in the city and then he gets out. Well, that kind of changes my view a little bit. And I'm not telling you one way is 100 percent. More than the other, okay? I'm just telling you, when I read all the commentaries as we were talking about them, and, and they say he was doing things in the flesh, doing it the, the fleshly way, the manly way. When I read Psalm 56, and I read about David's escape, and I read about how he escaped. Now think about this. Now you're a champion. People are singing songs about you, even on foreign territory. Yet your escape plan is to roll around on the ground while drooling. I think the people would have had that same thought. They would laugh at it. When you get laughed at, is that not a humbling experience? Doesn't scripture say that God will humble the proud? Huh? Might it be? Now, might it be? I'm not saying this is the way it is. I'm just kind of interpreting all the verses at once and trying to get a good idea of what's going on. Might it be, though, that God looked at David while he was in that prison and he's praying and he's worshiping and that fear is now turning into praising that he writes about. And might it be at that moment that God looked at it and said, you know what? You've been crazy the whole time. Lying, coming up into enemy territory while toting the enemy sword. Keep on acting crazy and I'll just get you out of here. Might have been you just act crazy and, and I'm going to humble you because I can't think of more humbling guys than, you know, I, I don't like when, 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 when spit flies when I speak. It happens all the time. But somebody grabbed a picture of it one time and it just looks funny because it's right down the end of your lip. You know what I'm saying? And I man, I delete that picture. I don't like that. Right. So I can't imagine straight up drooling and foaming at the mouth being what I would have to do publicly to get myself out of trouble. 
I think God humbled David through this moment right here. And he used this moment right here to teach him a little bit. Because later in Psalm 34, the other one I told you to read, David reflects on this incident. And he realizes, and he says this in Psalm 34, God was protecting me the whole time. See, it's one thing to get in a desperate situation. It's one thing to, to make desperate moves and to do desperate things. It's another thing when you're in a desperate moment and you can realize God was the one pulling me through that moment the entire time. It was God that was there and his strength that was there the entire time getting me out of this trouble. Now, now just for you Bible studiers, when you go back and read Psalm 34 tonight, like I know all of you are going to for your daily reading, because I'm so proud of how spiritual and holy all of you are. You're going to notice something in Psalm 34, okay? I'm sorry. The king is called Abimelech instead of, uh, how would you say it, Mitch? Wait, you pronounce it way better than me. Ahimelech, all right? And instead, you're going to see Ashish written in Psalm 34. Now, what that means is this, and I'm pronouncing them all wrong, but I need you to gather this. I don't want you to go back and study the word and say, oh, that chapter doesn't go with it. Yet it does. Because Ahimelech means this, the father of the king. It would be mo- no more different than, than the pharaohs of Egypt. You know, there's multiple pharaohs. Well, there's probably multiple kings, correct? All right, so, so we got uh, a name and a title, not two different people. All right, that's just my Bible study note for you guys. Wait, I'm over here. Here's what it says, though. Whole psalm is praise to God. I'm going to read four through six. Psalm 34, four through six. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Man, that doesn't that just sound like somebody who's had a turnaround? I mean, think about what he's saying. I sought the Lord and he answered me. It's a good thing to know when somebody answers you, right? He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. They begin to shine. So all you Christians walking around all gloomy, mopey, and in bad attitudes, please read Psalm 34 and realize you're supposed to be shining. Okay? Don't nobody want your little frown and don't nobody want your pity party. But everybody will want it when you got some joy on the inside. Alright? Be contagious. This poor man talking about himself, me, called on the Lord and he heard me and he saved me out of all my troubles. You know you're desperate when you're running around with drool on your beard. But my goodness, how good it must feel to know that God rescues you when you're in danger. David realizes this. And like David, church, I know a lot of us get to desperate times, different situations, maybe maybe completely different than David. But we can relate to the situation and the emotions that come behind it. And I just hope like David, we can realize that, that though we may be desperate and in danger, we've got a God who's there to rescue us through it all. We've got a God who's planning and, and working it all out. If we'll just surrender and trust him rather than lie and not trust. This poor man called and the Lord heard and saved him in his time of trouble. When you're on the run, church, you're going to be tempted to do all kind of wrong things, wrong decisions, wrong actions, wrong emotions, right? And getting in the wrong uh, situation even worse. David made some of the mistakes, but I'm so thankful that like us, when we make mistakes, David came out of it. He came out of it. He realized. Now, his mistakes are going to cost others dearly. They're going to cost himself just a little bit here in the next few chapters, okay? But even when we make mistakes and we got those those consequences and side effects for it, God is there. God is there, and that's what David realized. It was God that was steering the situation. It was God that was guiding the situation. He was there helping, helping 
as long as I was looking to him, I reached out. I cried out to him and he answered. What desperate situation have we got ourselves in that we need to realize we need God's direction and guidance and no longer our own? What desperate time, what desperate diagnosis, what desperate casualty, what desperate conversation have we put ourselves in and we've forgotten to trust God? David lies because he had a lack of trust at that moment. Now, I love it because it shows us as much credit as we give David, David being one of the most written about men in Scripture. We also get to see the dirty sides of David. Because I think like 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 David, we need to realize that we're not called to be perfect. We're called to recover. We're called to, to allow Christ to redeem us. We're called to change. We're called to put our trust back in him. I don't know what situation we're in. I don't know what situation we're at, but I do know God has picked out this chapter on this exact day as we go through scripture for some situation up in here. And if it's nothing more than the Miss Melinda being here this morning for us to pray over her. So while the band comes, I'm going to close this in prayer for today. I'm going to ask her to be up front. If you've got your own thing going on, your own situation, you come and pray. Altar don't close. Altar's always open for everybody. It's open access. You ain't got to have no membership club to get in or, or anything like that. But I'm asking her to come up front. I'm asking her to be surrounded by her kids uh, first because they initiated this thing and they told her, hey, we want to pray for you. Any of you adults ever did that? I mean, really did it. I'm not talking about like I'll pray for you while we in the corner and hide and nobody sees it. I'm talking about, hey, we want to bring you to a public place to be surrounded by our family, our friends, and we just want to lay hands on you. Scripture says what? Come like children. That's because there's not a doubt amongst these kids about what the power of prayer can do, right? Alright. I invite you guys to join us as we pray over her or over your own stuff and uh, the band to play. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, we lift the day up to you, Lord God. God, you made this day, Lord God, so it must be good. And Lord, I pray that you do good stuff through today, Lord God. God, I pray that you take your word that was read, Lord God, and interpreted and, and pictures that were given, Lord God, and God, you now establish in the heart where we need to be hit with it, Lord God. God, I pray that you penetrate our deepest emotions. God, use the day to change us, Lord God. God, use David's stories, David's mistakes and David's recovery, Lord God, to let us see that we need to trust you more in every situation of our life. God, let's kick fear out today, Lord God. Let's tote the sword of victory that you've given us. Not a Philistine sword, Lord God, but your word, the promises of your word, radical faith, Lord God. And charge this world outside from here on out. For it's in your great name we pray. Amen.